substance use disorder is an important health issue in our country. However, with effective treatment, recovery is possible for everyone. To have a better understanding with treatment of substance use disorders, I have Santa Maria Hostel Medical Director, Dr. Alicia Kolchuk, and Santa Maria alumni, Kaylin. Uh, she is part of the recovery coach team, and today we will be talking about Santa Maria Hostel, uh, the treatments that they provide, and the programs that they have in helping uh, women through the road of recovery. So I'm really excited to have them on here, and this is basically wrapping up our uh, three-part series of the, addic uh, of the addiction series. So. Good morning, ladies. Welcome to Chai Time. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Thank you for coming. Um, so, you know, we've had Santa Maria uh, team come here, not here, but at, at the other studio. And um, we had a pretty uh, small glimpse of what programs and services uh, y'all provide. So uh, today I would like to begin with a you know, short and brief overview of uh, what um, programs are there and what is Santa Maria Hostel all about. Sure, so Santa Maria Hostel is the largest drug or substance use disorder treatment center for women in the state of Texas. Over 90% of our clients are completely uninsured. So we uh, get funding through the state to provide free services for our clients um, who have no other means of paying for care. We, um, of the other 10% of folks that are with us, uh, the vast majority have Medicaid related to being pregnant or postpartum. So we are one of the few treatment centers also in the state who take care of women and help them with their substance use disorders while they're pregnant or postpartum. Um, we are also one of two in the state who provide residential treatment services for women um, that allow women to bring their younger children into treatment with them if they don't otherwise have a safe, sober, supportive uh, place for them to be while they're engaging in treatment services. Um, so women who have children up to about the age of 12 or through fifth grade mm -hmm. can bring their children with them to our Bonita House campus. We have uh, two main treatment campuses and a third supportive housing uh, program. Um, and while moms are going through their treatment program during the day, uh, during the weekday, uh, their elementary age and kindergartners uh, go across, literally almost across the street, about a block away is an HISD elementary school, and so they're enrolled there during the school year. Moms can take their children over there, pick them up in the afternoon um, after they're done uh, their main treatment programming for the day. Uh, we also partner with a local daycare uh, for the preschool children and then for our itty-bitty children, our <laughs> newborns. And so we have an on-site nursery. Okay. Um, and so, you know, women get their families ready for the day as they would, um, you know, when they're uh, done with treatment and in recovery and they get that experience and that bonding time with their children, um, get to stay uh, united with their children. Uh, and then after their treatment wraps for the day, um, you know, they have dinner together as a family. Uh, they go through the usual evening routines and, and bedtime routines uh, and then start the next day again. Wow, you'll have covered everything, kind of make them feel 
they're at home and mm -hmm. the peace of mind, especially when it comes to the children. No, absolutely. Santa Maria has many different programs and that we service uh, a little bit of everything from human trafficking to domestic violence to as well for uh, we offer services for intensive outpatient for women who are trying to still get sober but are not able to do, you know, in inpatient so they're able to still continue work, continue to do school, live life out in the community and still be able to get help as well. So that's a, a great thing that they have, like every area covered. Yeah. So what are some current treatments available at Santa Maria? Um, so uh, we also, in addition to residential and outpatient services, um, we offer a recovery coach program for uh, long-term engagement in recovery services. And, if you want to speak a little bit more to that. So a recovery coach, um, my name is Coach Kaylin. Actually, I am one of the recovery coaches. I have the privilege to be a bilingual coach. So I get to break that barrier, that language barrier for the Spanish-speaking population who comes in and don't understand English but still need uh, services to be able to build community back again once they transition from um, inpatient or even outpatient back into the community. Uh, so as a recovery coach, it's... Uh, it's our job to help the our peers to be able to build life back out in community because while they are doing inpatient uh, uh, treatment, they're like in a safety net. Mm -hmm. And so we have to prepare them for that transition from being back in a safe place to being able to go back out into the community where life is going to pick right back up and we have to prepare them like what do you need or what are you missing we want to make sure that they are stable and we want to make sure that they are connected to the recovery community so that we can make sure so we can make sure that their success in recovery is going to be a great one because okay. the more that they are connected to the recovery community it lessens the possibility of them returning to addiction so, so what we now understand about substance use disorders um, that, you know, maybe a decade ago, two decades ago, we really didn't understand as well, is this is not an acute illness or disease. This is a chronic illness. Mm -hmm. And so people need, just like if you have high blood pressure, or hypertension, or diabetes, you need to take long-term care of yourself. You may not need medication mm -hmm. um, the whole time you have it. You may be able to with lifestyle modifications, et cetera, um, be able to go on without medication um, for those illnesses. And certainly for substance use disorders, there's only medications for a few of the different types of substance use disorders. But you do need long-term engagement and care and a, a community um, to be successful and stay um, in recovery and manage your illness long-term. And that's where recovery coaching um, really plays a huge role. Um, and our recovery coach program will follow folks um, and stay engaged with them for years after oh, they wow. leave our treatment programming, yes. our formal treatment programming. Absolutely. One thing that we want to make sure is to let them know that they're not alone, mm -hmm. especially because a, a lot of peers coming in, they feel alone or they've lost the support of family, of friends because of their choices made while in their addiction. And so they have to rebuild from the ground up all those bridges that were burned. Mm -hmm. And so we want to make sure that as coaches, we want to let them know, like, I'm still here to support you, to motivate you, to, to help you to continue, even when you feel like throwing in the towel. Because if it was possible for me mm -hmm. to go forward, because a, a recovery coach is a person with lived experience, meaning that we've gone through our recovery process 
process and we have overcame and we're here to help you continue to stay on track because we want to see you be stable we want to see you be healthy we want to be able to see you with your family progressing your life be able to you know endeavor into new things into you into your future and so one of the things that as a coach we do is want to make sure that we let them know, hey, we're part of your support system. We're not just going to be here in the few months that you're going to be here in treatment. We want to make sure that we follow you through a, a, a longevity mm. of time, even after you transition from residential or outpatient. We want to make sure that we're here with you so you know that you have support to help you stay up and continue to build your recovery. So. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's great because the transition has to be a smooth transition, too. And many Correct. times, I mean, already there are so many challenges and, you know, it's, and it's always you lose that hope. So all the time, you know, having this having this there, you know, the recovery program is a great thing because when that person is losing hope or faith in themselves, that kind of, you know, you boost their morale and help them and say, hey, you know, it's not it's not the end. There is. We need to continue towards recovery. No, absolutely. And we have like a variety of different coaches with different backgrounds, with different life stories. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that we tell our peers is connect with a coach who you feel more connected to. Mm-hmm. Because if you can resonate with them, the more that they can help you. Mm-hmm. Because if you have nothing in common with them, if you have nothing that you feel like they can help you with, then it's going to make very little difference. But if you can connect to someone's... Uh, recovery story and you can connect with what they've been through and how they overcame and you feel like it's speaking to you it's going to make a bigger difference because you're going to be looking at yourself like if you're able to do that and I kind of went through the same thing then and you you came out of that then I can too and so increases that hope and and increases that possibility of you know what I can I can be sober too I can overcome this I can I can make a better life for myself and for my children for my family I can rebuild everything that I lost everything that I destroyed because of my addiction and so we have different coaches from different backgrounds, different languages, we want to make sure that we are able to connect with every possible person Mm -hmm. and help them engage in whatever services that they need, whatever resources that are here in the community, because Houston is a big city. And so there's a lot of programs and resources out there and that we want to make sure that we connect our peers to because we want them to see a better life. We want them to grow. We want them to be healthy. We want them to see them prosper and be successful Mm -hmm. and let let them know that, yes, you went through this little bump of addiction but that doesn't have to define who you are or the rest of your life. You can overcome it and move forward. Wow. So, Doctor, tell us about the uh, medication-assisted treatment and uh, when is it safe or recommended to use? Sure. Um, So we have medications for uh, people with nicotine use disorder, so tobacco use disorder. Um, A lot of people, when they're talking about substance use disorders, they forget about nicotine. That's actually (laughs) one of the most common substances (laughs) out there. Um, And most people are somewhat familiar with um, medication treatment for nicotine. Um, So there are patches, there are gum, those are over the counter. But then there are prescription medications like bupropion and varenicline. And so um, we have those things available to us um, at Santa Maria Hostel and for our patients. Um, And they're also available in the community. I always like to start there because people are already familiar with that concept. And what we know about medications for treating tobacco or nicotine use disorder is that they double the success rate of people achieving and maintaining um, long-term recovery from nicotine use disorder and those quit attempts being successful. 
Um, but there are medications for um, some of the other use disorders, particularly alcohol use disorder and opiate use disorder. For alcohol dis use disorder, uh, we have several FDA-approved medications for treatment now um, to help people maintain recovery once they achieve sobriety. Um, so we have a medication called naltrexone that's available as a daily pill and a monthly injection. And we also have a medication called a Camprosate or Camprol. Um, and that's also a medication you take a couple times a day to prevent relapse. Uh, and very similar to medications for um, nicotine or tobacco, it uh, doubles the chance that people are going to stay sober and achieve, um, you know, long-term recovery mm -hmm. to combine medication with uh, other um, treatment, um, whether that's residential, outpatient, um, or what have you. Um, so we have those medications available. There are also a few other medications that have been um, well studied in the literature, but they haven't been FDA approved. We use them off-label. Uh, one is gabapentin, which mm -hmm. may be familiar to some of your listeners as uh, Neurontin. Yes. It's used for a lot of uh, different things besides seizure disorder, which is what it was originally developed for and approved for. Um, it's used uh, in, in a variety of mental health conditions, and it's found to be helpful um, to help people abstain from alcohol as well. Um, and then um, there are a few other uh, medications that are like gabapentin. Um, they stabilize those same receptors that gabapentin does in the brain um, that help prevent relapse and uh, increase chances for recovery. One is called topiramate or topamax. Um, and so there's a variety of medications now for alcohol use disorder. Um, and then for opiate use disorder, medication treatment is now considered the gold standard for treating opiate use disorder, um, not um, just um, non-medication treatment. So behavioral treatments alone uh, have not been shown to be very effective. So over 90% of people with opiate use disorder will chronically relapse if they're not on medication therapy. Um, and the studies suggest that a minimum of a year on medication treatment. Um, some of the older studies looking at methadone treatment, which were not a methadone um, treatment facility, although we partner with um, uh, methadone treatment programs in the community. Um, but some of those older studies suggest three to five years is, is really gives a solid mm -hmm. uh, long-term uh, success rates for recovery. So we're talking about a longer-term medication, similar to people taking something for their blood pressure or their mm -hmm. diabetes. Um, and then the medication that we have for opiate use disorder is called buprenorphine. Um, one of the brand names is Suboxone, maybe more familiar for listeners. Yes on that terminology. And so we can get people started on that with us and continued uh, long-term. It is um, a daily medication. You take anywhere from one to three times a day, depending on what your dose ends up being that you stabilize on. Um, and it helps uh, block the opiate receptors uh, from uh, opiates that you might try to take on top. Um, but more importantly, it stabilizes those receptors. Um, it turns them on part way, so people okay. don't feel high on it. You don't get high from it, um, you know, if you're used to taking opiates. Um, it only turns them on part way, but that part way turning them on really prevents people from having those cravings and withdrawals um, 
that really trip people up in recovery. Um, and so they can really focus, instead of focusing on fighting a craving or feelings of withdrawal long-term, they can focus on those skills and um, those relationship rebuilding uh, process um, to ensure their long-term sobriety. Okay. And uh, so you also have a detox uh, service that you all provide. So tell us uh, more about that as well. Yeah, so we have eight beds in our detox unit. Um, we are one of only two state-funded detox programs in the greater Houston area. Um, and that can be a real barrier for people getting into other treatment services if they need a detox first. And again, detox is really for folks that are um, physically dependent on alcohol, benzodiazepines, uh, things like CNX or Valium uh, are kind of common benzodiazepines. Um, or opiates mm. um, and um, we uh, admit people for typically uh, around four to seven days okay. uh, is the detox process um, and we use medication to help people have a safe detox so um, withdrawing uh, cold turkey from alcohol or benzodiazepines actually can be life-threatening mm -hmm. um, depending on how severe people are physically dependent on those substances um, people can get uh, withdrawal seizures um, that become intractable, they're not stopped, and uh, people can die. Um, so we really obviously want to avoid that <laughs> and help people have a safe entry into the recovery. It's also very uncomfortable, um, and there's no need for people to kind of try to kick on, quote-unquote, kick on their own um, and risk a bad medical outcome, even death, and just feeling miserable. Um, I know in, you know, um, a lot of popular depictions of people entering recovery in movies and TV shows, you know, they show someone, you know, their their family or loved one may, you know, um, be caretaking with them, but they're basically locked in and, you know, uh, they look like they have the flu and they're miserable for a few days and um, it just looks horrendous and it does right. feel horrendous. There is no need for that anymore. With medication, we can keep people comfortable and safe. Um, for alcohol and benzodiazepines, we taper people off of the detox medication that is used because it can be habit forming. So we don't want to trade one thing for another, um, but we do that safely and very controlled and people are on it very short amount of time. Um, for opiates, uh, like I said, medication therapy long-term for opiate use disorder is now the gold standard. So most of the time, we're just helping people get onto a stable dose of the buprenorphine. But some people really want to give that, you know, give a shot to not having to take a medicine every day. We understand that. I don't like yeah. to have to take medicine. <laughs> Nobody does. Um, it's and, hard to take vitamins. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's a lot to ask, right? right? Um, and for what, you know, various reasons, people just don't want the medication. And so we'll use um, buprenorphine, but in, to help people detox from their opiate uh, safely and not having to go through that, just feeling like they have the worst flu of their life, et cetera. And I don't know how many patients we've seen in detox and, you know, toward the end of their detox day and they're ready to transition to their next, um, next phase of treatment. Um, they're like, wow, if I didn't know this wasn't going to, I didn't have to feel miserable and it wasn't going to be that bad, I would have gotten here a lot sooner. I would have gotten treatment a lot sooner. Um, so, yes, you don't have to feel miserable. 
um, you know, we can help you get through it safely and, and comfortably. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you're sharing this because there are so many misconceptions, you know, when it comes to especially words like detox and, you know, any anything with medication. So clarifying that is a huge it's 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 great. It's the first step because many times we, we just Google it. And sometimes Google's not always right. <laughs> so, for, you know, for you to to really make us understand that in and simplify it, it's it's really it's that's great. Um, so let's go on a short break, and when we return, we will continue our conversation. This is Chai Time on one hundred three point five Hum FM. Back to Chai Time on one hundred three point five Hum FM. We are in conversation with Dr. Leisha and with Kaylin from Santa Maria Hospital. And we have been talking about uh, treatments for substance use disorders. Um, so I have a couple of questions, the anonymous questions uh, from our listeners. So one of them is, I've been using medications to help me sleep for a long time. Can I become addicted to them? How can I tell? Great question. So it really depends on what medication that someone is taking. Some of the prescription and even over-the-counter medications you can become physically dependent on, meaning if you try to stop them cold turkey, um, you'll have a a rebound insomnia. So um, you won't be able to sleep just because your body is used to having that to sleep. Um, So we recommend in those cases um, that people just slowly taper off. So that could be decreasing the dose to as low as possible, and then maybe alternating days that they take them. Um, So they gradually wean themselves off of it. But some of the medications can be truly, um, you can develop a true use disorder for particularly things like Ambien, um, or Zolpidem, uh, the Z drug is what it's called. Um, And certainly if you're using benzodiazepines, things like Xanax, Clonopin, Ativan for sleep, those uh, can very quickly lead to physical dependence within about two weeks of taking them regularly every day. Um, And then a use disorder. Um, And really the difference is with, with physical dependence, your body is used to them, you may need to taper off of them to um, not be stuck with that insomnia long-term um, and have you know other, other uh, feelings of anxiety and restlessness related to stopping them cold turkey. Um, but the hallmark of really transitioning from you know, using a substance to developing misuse or risky use would be using more than um, as prescribed or what's on the bottle to take. Uh, if it's over the counter, and then transitioning into a use disorder, uh, what you what we're really looking for is that you're starting to continue to use despite having some negative consequences around your use. So you you realize, hey, maybe this isn't so good for me, so healthy for me anymore, and I've tried to stop and I really can't. Um, I keep using despite those negative consequences. It could mean that you're oversleeping in the morning and late to work or late Mm. to school, uh, or it's making you so groggy during the day that you're not able to do some of the things you need to do, like uh, care for your child or 
um, take care of household tasks, etc. So if you're starting to see um, or feel those type of things around your use of a particular substance, really encourage people to reach out to their primary care provider uh, or even to a specialized treatment program like Santa Maria for further assessment and care. Um, and then a more severe use disorder is really showing a lack of control over use. So this is someone who, you know, if you take one, you're going to take a handful or however much is there. Um, you really can't uh, control or moderate your use at all. And that really is a hallmark of a moderate to severe use disorder. And in that case, I do suggest, you know, going straight to specialized care. Okay. So great question from your user. So I just uh, was thinking, you know, that even a lot of people are heading towards like natural remedies for mm -hmm. sleep or, you know, for other things as well. So what are your thoughts on melatonin? Yeah, so melatonin can be really helpful, but people can uh, take too much. Right. Um, uh, I, there's no melatonin use disorder, so it's not physically dependent in the sense that, you know, you need a, um, a detox from it. But mm -hmm. I do suggest, it, you know, if you've kind of reached the maximum dose of melatonin over the counter and you're still finding issues with your sleep, that you probably need to go to your primary care provider okay. and seek um, other other uh, assessment or treatment of why you're not sleeping. So one of the most effective treatments for insomnia is actually not medication at all, even over-the-counter or herbal like uh, melatonin, mm -hmm. uh, but is cognitive behavioral therapy. And I know it can be a lot easier to find in our community um, and and cheaper to just grab some yeah. melatonin, mm -hmm. you know, off the shelf at your local retailer. Um, but it sometimes isn't the most effective. And now there are even some free apps out there that, mm -hmm. that provide um, some CBT-like services. So it really, um, and then we don't want to miss that folks have something else going on um, with their insomnia. So obstructive sleep apnea. Um, there are a number of medical uh, mm -hmm. reasons people could have insomnia. It can be, um, you know, that we wouldn't want to get missed. So okay. again, I encourage people to reach out to their primary care provider if they find that kind of the simple over-the-counter stuff is, isn't working and not just to keep going and going and, well, if one's, <laughs> if one's good, two's better, you know. Um, it's yeah. natural. Yeah, yeah, it's natural. It's gonna happen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I do wanna say this as well, um, not only from a person with lived experience from uh, substance abuse, but even when you find yourself taking a medication throughout the day because you still function, mm -hmm. you want to keep that in mind that just because you're functioning doesn't mean that you may not have a problem. Because a lot of times we find ourselves that oh, I need to take this to be able to continue with my day mm -hmm. so that I can continue doing this, so I can keep pushing forward. I may have a long day ahead of me. I need to take extra today or I might need to take one more or find yourself. So you, you want to be mindful of that too if you find yourself um, taking some throughout the day when you know you normally don't mm. or continually starting to pick up on just one one extra one extra because that does start leading even more further into a dependency not just at night but even throughout the day as well and just because we feel like oh well, i'm functioning i'm doing all i'm taking care of my kids i'm going to work i'm handling my business we think that that's okay until it becomes not okay mm. and so i do want to say that as well that's great advice 
So the other question was, can pain medications I use lead to substance abuse? Yeah, so again, it depends on the type of pain medication. Um, but particularly if it's an opioid pain medication or opioid related. So um, one of the uh, medications that um, people don't realize is like an opiate is something called tramadol or Altram. Mm. Um, it gets uh, changed into the body or metabolized into the body into an opiate metabolite. And that's what's really active and helps with pain relief, but it can also lead to uh, an opiate use disorder. Um, things like uh, naproxen, ibuprofen, acetaminophen, or Tylenol, Aleve, Motrin, um, those things, uh, those medications aren't, um, aren't addicting. Mm. Um, again, you can use too much, um, and then if you find yourself using too much of those medications, I really encourage folks to go to their primary care and find out what other alternatives are out there, um, maybe what else is maybe going on. Um, but particularly for opiates, yes, you can develop an opiate use disorder. And we used to talk about um, these medications way back in the early 2000s as if you're using it for pain and you have pain and you're just using it as prescribed, don't need to worry. And then we started noticing <laughs> um, we're starting to get into an opiate epidemic and mm. starting to realize, wow, you know, these, these, this can be risky. And particularly for people that are at high risk of a use disorder. Um, and so that's where our thoughts were and what we would counsel patients around in the late 2000s, early 2010s. We were still seeing skyrocketing of the opiate use and opiate use disorder and the uh, epidemic um, what we realized is these medications in and of themselves are problematic and, and can lead to use disorders. It doesn't mean that we don't still sometimes use opiates to help people with pain, particularly acute pain, like after you have an operation. Mm. Um, but we use them much less for much shorter time periods because we know if, if people take them even for, for example, after a cesarean section, you know, I've taken care of women who their opiate use disorder started when they got prescribed an opiate after C-section. And it wasn't just in the hospital they got prescribed. They got sent home with maybe a two-week supply or a one-month supply. And, you know, anything over about 10 days to two weeks um, for acute pain um, using an opiate, we see higher risk that people are still going to be using that opiate 30 days later, six months later, and developing a use disorder. Um, it still sometimes is used for chronic pain, although we know it's it's not um, not very effective for most people. Um, and so, if you're on an opioid for your pain, we recommend that you work with your prescriber to make sure uh, you're on the lowest effective dose possible. That if you find that you're using more and more, yeah. um, that they're they're able to talk to you about alternatives. Um, and transitioning off the opioid if it's really not doing much for you. Um, so great question. And then we have that medication again. We have several medications to treat opiate use disorder. Buprenorphine or Suboxone is the one we use most commonly at Santa okay. Maria. Um, and it does help um, somewhat with pain as well. So I have a number of my patients who um, they got into their opiate use disorder through uh, their chronic pain management with an opioid. Someone wrote it for them, um, and then they found themselves with an opiate use disorder. 
um, and they do quite well on uh, buprenorphine or suboxone. That's when we tend to dose it more than once a day because the pain relieving part of suboxone really only lasts about eight hours or so. And so if we dose it, um, you know, two or three times a day, it also usually helps as much as their opiate did for their chronic pain. Um, and so they're able, we're able to both help with their chronic pain management somewhat and also their opiate use disorder. Yeah. Um, we also recommend anyone who is on an opioid chronically um, mm -hmm. for their pain to, uh, to have naloxone available and to know how to use it to make sure that their loved ones know how to use it for them and where they keep it in their home. Um, naloxone is now available over the counter um, okay. as the branded Narcan. Um, it's about $44 for a two-pack, so it's not the cheapest thing out there, but compared to your life, I think it's, um, of course, it's yeah. Um, yeah. everyone's, um, you know, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very needful um, because you never know, you could accidentally double up on, a on, mm -hmm. on your medication. Um, if you have it in your home and, you know, someone gets a hold of it that is not not used to opiates, they're likely to overdose even on a fairly low dose. Um, so you have a child in your home or a teen coming over, et cetera, um, we wanna make sure that you'd be able to respond. So we do recommend that if you're on opiates of any kind, mm -hmm. um, more than just, you know, you just had knee surgery or something or your gallbladder <laughs> out and you've got a few days to go home with, you know, you probably don't need to have naloxone there. But if you um, keep have opiates in your home chronically, it's good to have the naloxone too. It's a nasal spray. It's really easy to use. If, if you can use an over-the-counter nasal spray like um, the uh, Flonase or other allergy mm -hmm. nasal sprays, um, you can use... Um, Narcan. It's okay. really simple. It is. And even it has the instructions in the box as well. Right. Um, but there are also a lot of websites out there that will give you a, at least one free Narcan to have in your home, If mm -hmm. especially if you have a loved one that is on opiates or is an opiate user and they've had a struggle with it. And so there's a lot of websites that you can access a free Narcan that will be delivered to you okay. just to have one. Um, even as, as coaches, um, like our coaches who are our Medicaid assistant treatment coaches, we have access to Narcan because we understand what population we're dealing with. And so we want to encourage them to um, have Narcan on hand and to have someone um, nearby who knows mm -hmm. how to use it and how to be able to administer Narcan in the event of a relapse, in the event of an overdose. And so that's very important because if you're in the middle of an overdose, you yourself may not be able to administer it to you. So it's going to be, it's very important that you have someone who can be able to access it and knows how to administer it to you at any possible time if needed. And one of the websites here in Texas is called morenarcanplease.com. Yes. It's okay. run out of UT San Antonio and they will, um, they will mail you for free the, the Narcan. Um, depending on their their the, how their funding is going at the time, yeah. um, there can be a little wait for it. Um, but it's definitely worth checking out their website, and they have lots of training resources on how to use it. Um, the big thing, if you do have to give someone Narcan, 
uh, to know is Narcan lasts in the body about 30 to 90 minutes. All opiates last longer in the body. So um, it's very important if you're giving someone Narcan to call 911 and get mm. them to emergency care uh, for ongoing monitoring because there's a very real chance that as the Narcan wears off, the person can go back into overdose. Yes. Oh, okay. um, so you want them to be at the in the ER at the hospital at that point so that they can be um, monitored and assessed. And if they go back into overdose, more doses can be given. Yes. Okay. So just really important if you're giving Narcan, call 911, yeah. really encourage that person, even if they come out of it and they look perfectly fine, they should still go and get checked out. Yeah. One thing as a coach that I have learned is that if someone is in the middle of an overdose and um, you do call 911, just specifically say that the person is not breathing because mm -hmm. there there is a lot, we deal with a lot of stigma out here in the community because of addiction. And so one thing that we emphasize on a lot that if someone is in an overdose, we, we just want to say to the caller, um, to the operator, that they're not breathing. And that is it. They're not breathing. Their lips are blue. We don't mention anything as far as uh, an overdose because a lot of times, because of stigma that is out here in the community, out in the in the society, they may or may not come, and that may cause the person's life. Yeah. And so one thing that we do emphasize is that if the person is in the middle of an active overdose, that you just say, person is not breathing, their you know, maybe lips are turning blue, and just leave it at that. That also gets around a real fear for some people to call 911, which it is does. that they are fearful that, um, you know, there'll be a um, police dispatch to the scene. Yes. And, um, you know, uh, uh, they may have had negative interactions with police before. There may be if someone had been actively using like um, heroin or fentanyl, there may be drug paraphernalia there. They may have an, um, an outstanding warrant, et cetera and just not want to interact with police. Um, in most jurisdictions, um, if you say overdose to the 911 caller, police may be dispatched along with um, emergency services or EMS. Um, and certainly most police forces now, uh, all their units are stocked with naloxone and officers can respond and save lives. Right. Um, but for some folks, that would present a barrier for them calling. Yes. Um, if instead they say a person is not breathing, that's my emergency, um, then police aren't dispatched alongside EMS and they just get that EMS response. So if they're worried about interacting with the police, they don't have to weigh that against right. helping right. save you know, their loved one or their friend's life. Correct. Another thing that happens um, is that once the person is administered Narcan, a lot of times they come to and they have this tendency of running sometimes, which can be dangerous um, and or when paramedics come on the scene, they may take off because of the fear of police being called or not wanting to go to the hospital because of other of stigma that's out there, of, of things that they heard through other people yeah. or things that they have experienced. And so an extra, even if the paramedics do come, we do advise, try to see if they can leave like another Narcan around. Okay. If, if in the event of they do take off uh, and they and the possibility of them going back into an overdose, you wanna at least have another Narcan and try again with the paramedics if possible. Okay. 
That's great information. So Kaylin, I want to talk a little bit about you, uh, how you got involved with Santa Maria and how you are a big part of the recovery coach team. So share your story and your journey with us. Absolutely. So about four years, actually four years ago, um, I was in an active addiction. Um, I had reached that point for myself where I was done, but I didn't know how to stop. And so for me, it was um, more so on a spiritual journey because I had came to that point where family was not really there to support. And so my only way out was through a spiritual awakening, like me calling out to God, because I was at a point where I was tired of being sick and tired of the same routine of just smoking and doing whatever I was doing. And I was just tired of it. But I didn't, I didn't know how to stop. I didn't know anything about Santa Maria. I didn't know about, um, you know, facilities that could help you, you know, to stop or anything. I didn't, I didn't know that information. And so for me, I found myself one day just, you know, just getting high. And I, I, I felt myself in this darkness. And in somewhere in that middle of that darkness, I just called out to God, which at that moment I was kind of like, I don't know if you're, if you're real anymore. I said, I don't know if you're there. I don't know if you exist. But I said, if you do, if you care, I, I need a way out. I said, I'm tired. I, I want to stop. Um, I had an active CPS case that I had uh, like avoided. And somehow they caught up with me again months later. So that CPS came into play like in March of 2019 and I dodged them and back again in 20. And then that few months later in August, they came back into the picture. But that was my ticket out because after being in that dark place and just getting high and just kind of calling out like, you know, I'm kind of done. I've had my fun. I'm, I'm over it, but I don't know how to stop because that addiction, you may want to stop, mm. but you don't know how because it, you become so dependent on it. And so I found myself thinking I was going to the school to, you know, to get help with resources because I had just lost my job. Um, I needed to be pay rent. I needed to be able to have get these resources and, and they had helped me before. So I was like, you know what, let me go. And so I found myself going back to the school. And to my surprise, the social worker was there, CPS was there, the assistant principal was there. And I was just like, oh, great, reunion. I'm like, hello, how are you? And they were trying to take my kids from me. And I was just like, "Mm, no. I was like, you're not going to do that. Um, I'll do whatever you want. I'll go to any facilities. I'll jump up and down, roll over, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. I was like, like, I admit. I was like, yeah, I did my nonsense, but you're not taking my children. And I think for me, it was in that moment of that going back and forth with them that in my experience of how things played out, I think God really saw that I was really serious about wanting to change, about really wanting to move forward with myself and just kind of being done with the whole addiction thing that it was, we were going back and forth for hours in that room. And I mean, I walked in there like about one in the afternoon. I didn't walk out of there till about 7 p.m. And it was just a back and forth battle. But I just remember I was talking to the CPS worker I started seeing this little shining bright light coming from the corner of the ceiling, and I thought I was really high. I was just like, man, I must be still on something because I'm looking at lights, and then I'm having this whole conversation with the lady. I'm having a conversation with myself, and I'm just like, should I tell them? No, don't tell them because they're going to really take your kids then. And then, But I'm following this little light with my eyes, and I see it land on the CPS worker's forehead. And the moment it touched her forehead, she smacked herself dead center on her forehead, and she said, Santa Maria. 
and instantly my mind, my, my head like knew to turn, like somebody just went whoosh. And I saw the assistant principal just dialing numbers just like that. Like if she knew the number like off the top of her head and she was calling Santa Maria. At this point, it's late in the evening and somebody picked up the phone. They're like, okay, well, just make sure that she's come, you know, that she's here with her children this day and at that time. And, and I was like, if you take me, I'll go. But it gave me the opportunity to uh, close out that CPS case, to be able to get help with my addiction that I was in. It helped me to be able to recover and who I was and be able to build myself back up. So when I came to Santa Maria, I didn't know that they existed. I didn't know. They had told me bring close to 14 days. And I thought, okay, good, 14 days, I can do that. Then I got hit with three months. I was like, man, like they caught me. (laughs) (laughs) But... I was I was given so much support, so much love, and so much uh, care yeah. that it helped me to just nurture myself back to who I truly was, yeah. and it gave me all the information that I needed to how to stay sober, and gave me the support that I needed to be able to move on with myself. And even so, during my time at Santa Maria, I experienced the worst of the worst things that can happen to somebody. I lost the person that I love the most, the father of my children, ten year relationship just out the window. Um, he had committed suicide and that can instantly set someone you know right on the trajectory to uh easy relapse and i was surrounded by a group of clinical care who knew who were trauma informed who knew how to handle all that mm-hmm. so i was in the safest place i could possibly be not only for me but my children as well because as much as my mind was telling me to go relapse I was surrounded by a group of clinicians a group of of people a support and staff who were trauma-informed who knew how to handle uh, how to handle my outbursts who knew how to handle um, the rage that I was experiencing all the emotions all the pain that I was going through and they actually helped me to maintain sober Mm -hmm. and as well they gave the attention to my children as well who had just lost her father they were in in a facility with me getting sober Mm -hmm. and they just handled the situation really well from every side that I could possibly get they involved everybody who was needed and I got that full holistic care Mm -hmm. that someone needs in a moment like that and to this day I can say I'm four years sober and so I am I am grateful for Santa Maria and I'm grateful to God as well because he opened up that door yeah. for Santa Maria because I had no clue that they even existed yeah. let alone that I could have my children keep my children and you know maintain custody for them and at the same time learn to become a a, a better mother yeah. and a better woman and just heal myself from a lot of things that were keeping me in my addiction and so I'm very grateful for that Santa Maria is truly changing lives It is Thank you ladies thank you so so much for joining me. I mean, there were so many more questions. And we have to definitely have your back again. But thank you for joining me this morning. Thank you, listeners, for getting involved and sending your questions as well. Uh, we shall see you next week, same time, same place. Signing off, Chai Time on 103.5 Hum FM.